Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hey, it's Anna. We've been doing a series of live Zoom conversations with the authors of new books that we love this summer. Last week, I sat down with writer and artist Akweke Imezi, and it was a fantastic conversation. Akweke has recently been a very prolific writer. They've published three books in three years. Their debut novel, Freshwater, came out in 2018 and was met with celebratory critical acclaim. Then came a young adult novel called Pet, And this month, their novel, The Death of Vivek Oji, came out and became a New York Times bestseller. All this at age 33. And after Akweke took a pretty winding path through school, which I asked them about. I also want to give you a heads up. We talk about mental health, including suicidal ideation. We talked over Zoom while Akweke was in New Orleans in the home they bought last fall and have been settling into since. You know, I came to the States when I was 16, so 17 years ago. And in that time, I never really had a home here. Like, I moved to the States before my mom did, and my father still lives back in Nigeria. So when I moved, I just, like, stayed on college dorms, in college dorms, and I stayed with family friends over the holidays. And then my mom moved a year later, and my sister was living with her, but I never lived with her. I would just visit for a couple of weeks And so for more than a decade, I've just been bouncing from apartment to apartment, sometimes without apartments in between, Mm -hmm. sublets. I've never lived in one place for longer than two years. Mm -hmm. So to buy a house was a really, really big deal for me because it felt like I was getting a home for the first time since I was 16. And this one was mine. You know, it didn't belong to either of my parents. It was just mine and I could do whatever I want with it. And it's, it's a little terrifying at first, like this idea of you don't have to leave. Like I had to tell myself that the first year a lot. I'm like, you never have to leave. Like you can put stuff in the house and you don't have to pack it up. You don't have to, you can put books on a shelf. I was just using eBooks because there was no point in having books. I was never anywhere long enough for it not to be a huge pain to pack them all. So It's been a really, actually a rough transition. As much as it's felt safe, I think safe has felt unfamiliar Hmm. for me. So my initial reaction to being safe was to panic, just completely (laughs) panic. I was like, everything's going to fall down. My house is going to get broken into or burned to the ground. Something terrible is going to happen because this can't be real. Settling in felt uh, anxiety inducing. And how did you choose New Orleans? Randomly. So randomly. I think it was a spirit thing, honestly. I had been looking into like the kind of house I wanted. And I was living in Brooklyn where I was on and off for like the past 10 years. And I was looking at these houses in Ditmas Park, which are just like gorgeous things with porches and yard space and still walking distance from a subway. And I was like, oh, want this. I didn't even know I wanted a porch, but those houses cost $2 million. So I was like, well, you know, maybe down the line in my career, maybe I can afford a house there. And a friend of mine had moved to New Orleans, another writer, Daniel Jose Older, 
Um, mm. And my mom lives in Albuquerque. So, you know, when you're online and you're just looking at properties and you're like, let me just see what it's like in other cities. And I looked at some places in Albuquerque and then I looked at houses in New Orleans and I was like, wait, these are the same houses. They're literally shaped the same way. They've got the yard space. They've got the porch. I'd only spent maybe 24 hours in New Orleans before for a wedding. Oh, really? Yeah, I had never, I had never really visited before. So I was like, cool, I'm going to buy a house in New Orleans. And I called Daniel and I was like, how does this sound? And he was like, fantastic. Come on I'm over. Coming. <laughs> so I went, um, I went after Freshwater came out in 2018. That September, I came down to New Orleans for about a day just to feel out the city because everyone who had spent time here, they said, you know, the city is very particular. Mm-hmm. And you have to go and see whether your spirit jives with it or not. Because for some people, they can't live here. It's too heavy or it's too, they can feel like too many of the ghosts that mm-hmm. are here. Um, and, and so I came to introduce myself to the city overnight. And I was looking for sublets. Um, and the city basically was like, yeah, you can come, but you can't move how you were moving in New York. You have to slow all the way down. Because if you try moving like you move in New York, you're just going to keep hitting obstacles. And unless you learn to let things go and change your pace, then it's not going to be a good match. And I was like, I can, I can do that. I think it's time to slow down. And so, yeah, the Halloween of that year, I got a sublet in New Orleans and I moved down here. And I was in between New Orleans and New York for a little bit. I was waiting for my tax season to be over so I could buy a house because my bank accounts like had money, but my taxes were like, you're poor. We don't believe yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> and so in March, like I bought this house. And then the next Halloween, I permanently took all my stuff from New York and came here full time. Halloween of 2019. Mm-hmm. So it's not yet been a year. Years. It's not yet been a year. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the reason I'm curious about how you're thinking of home, because I I thought a lot about that when I was reading your most recent novel, and I was wondering, well, well, how how recently have you been to Nigeria? When was the last time you were there? Last time I was there was in 2016. Mm -hmm. Does it feel like a place, if we were in a normal time, would you be thinking about your next visit? Or do you go when there's a reason to go in your life now? I was planning my next visit. My sister lives there. So mm-hmm. my little sister, she finished college in the States and she moved to Lagos. Um, and I was planning to go and visit her. I was planning to, you know, I was waiting until I was financially stable enough to be able to like pay for my travel. I have a chronic pain and a chronic injury. So traveling has so many requirements for me. And I wanted to do like a little tour that I funded myself because there weren't really like resources coming from anywhere else to fund it. Where a I book went tour. To yes, uh-huh. yes. Where I went to Nigeria and I went to, you know, Kenya, you know, Nairobi and South Africa, Johannesburg. And I wanted to like visit all the readers who were there because so often, you know, the tour skills that we have just exclude the continent. So yeah, I was planning to go and then, you know, pandemic. Hmm. It was gonna be a self-funded tour to get to the to the continent. Yeah. Huh. I wonder. When you think about the time that you were growing up in Nigeria, it's it's the time that this book is set in, your, your newest novel. It's a time of political upheaval. It's a time of uncertainty. Um, does it feel similar to this time we're in now when you think back on how you experienced it as a teenager, what it was like to live in a time when you weren't quite sure what the shape of life was going to look like? 
Um, you know, I think in some ways this is actually more stressful hmm. because growing up, we were always in that environment. You know, one of the things that I had a hard time adjusting to when I came to the States, specifically when I first moved to New York, I was getting a master's degree in public administration. And, you know, we would talk a lot about public policy and things like that. And I realized that a lot of people here were not used to having a government that was actively trying to kill them. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Oh, that's a familiar feeling. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I know what that feels like. And, you know, for Black people in this country, like, they know what that feels like, too. That has mm-hmm. been a huge part of the history of this country. But I think what was a source of stability in an odd way was that growing up, we knew not to expect anything else. We didn't expect that the government was going to help us or give a crap about us or, you know, look out for us. And that was already the norm. So, I mean, by the time I was born, we'd already settled into that. And I think now it's like being in the active decline. And I'm just like, oh, you know, in some ways, (laughs) would it be easier to like have the decline already have happened and just settle into that new normal rather than the roughness of the transition. You said active or the act of, is it active decline or are we active? Active Active. Active decline. Dynamic decline. Yes. Um, I want to know about how you got into those public policy classes as a young person and then how you wound up being a a writer, I think that period of your life is so interesting, the path that you took um, through school. And and I was struck by reading about you that you knew as a child that you loved to write and that you your your mother found a book that you had written and illustrated when you were seven that where you described yourself in your bio as having the ambition to become a world famous artist and writer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You knew at seven. Um, did that feel focused? And so, when you were, you know, becoming a teenager, thinking about where you wanted to go to school, did that feel initially like a possibility that you could pursue? You see, what happened was I got distracted when I was eight by be- wanting to become a vet. because I really loved animals, and Uh I also wanted to be a writer who would have a cottage in Switzerland. Uh huh. We read too many too many books that were not from Nigeria. (laughs) And I was like, yes, the cottage in Switzerland, that's my ideal place. Um, And then when I was eight, I decided I wanted to become a vet because I really loved all my pets and we didn't have a vet. And so we couldn't like get my cat spayed. And when my dog broke his leg, we couldn't get it treated. And it just like really upset me as a kid. So I was like, I'm going to become a vet. And then my mother decided, for some reason, to take an eight-year-old seriously. <laughs> and that's how I ended up um, studying pre-veterinary biology in undergrad and going to Tufts for vet school <laughs> because I had set up that trajectory accidentally. And, you know, my parents accepted it because it was a science, you know. It wasn't, according to my father, it wasn't as much prestige as being a human doctor. But, you know, it would do. And I wanted to change my major when I was an undergrad, actually. I wanted to change it to linguistics. Hmm. No idea why, but I just, I wanted to do something with words and language. And 
I had a professor who taught me a literature class and he wanted me to change my major to creative writing. And I was like, that's not possible. I mean, also for context, I was, I was very young in college. Like I graduated college when I was 19. So at the time we're having this conversation, I'm like a junior and I'm like 17. Like I'm like, I was entering my junior year and I was 17. Like I was very young. So I was still in a place where I didn't make the decisions Mm -hmm. about my life. My family did. Mm -hmm. And when I told him I wanted to change my major, I didn't get permission. How was it that you started college so young? Um, We have a different education system back in Nigeria. It's based on the British one because, you know, yay, colonialism. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I skipped sixth grade and I was delighted because my childhood best friend had been a year ahead of me my whole life, but because I skipped a grade, I caught up with her. Uh So whenever I had a hard time with the classes and I would go to my dad, I'm just like, it's hard. I don't understand. And he's like, we can always just put you back a year and then you won't be in the same class with her. And I was like, "Never mind, (laughs) I'll figure it out. (laughs) So I graduated with a bunch of other kids who were um, 16, another student who was 15, um, 16, 17 is like a regular age to like graduate high school. And then I came to the States and everyone was like, what are you doing in college? <laughs> <laughs> like what's your freshman roommate? And did you live in the dorms and you were really yes. like an 18 or 19 year old? And you're, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And it was just like all the culture shock. So I want to know about starting vet school. Veterinary medicine is a tough field. Like that's tough schooling and you're in the middle of it. How did you realize this was not the path you wanted to keep pursuing? Oh, I hated it so much. Um, I loved dissecting animals. That was my favorite part. I really wanted, secretly, I wanted a job. You know, the people who make like the bodies exhibits. (laughs) I was like, I want to do that. That seems really cool because you don't have to learn how to keep your subject alive. You can just do the fun cutty bits. (laughs) Um, But I had really coasted through college in a way that was not the best for a student. Like my freshman classes were years behind what I had done in Nigeria. I tested out of so many classes because I was like, your your educational system is so backwards, (laughs) literally backwards. Um, and, And so I got into the habit of not actually learning. I was one of those students who can memorize things really well and regurgitate them really well. I was an excellent test taker. Like just the dream of a test taker. So I did really well, but I didn't retain any information. And by the time I got to vet school, turns out you were supposed to retain that information (laughs) (laughs) because you needed it for classes. So I was bombing all my vet classes. I was doing so badly at them. And I was 20 and the rigor of veterinary school is ridiculous it's you know 40 hours a week in classroom from eight to five every single day and then five or six hours of studying afterwards and it was just breaking me apart like my mental health was just down the drain i was really suicidal I had to repeat my first year because I failed out. I failed actually my first year there. And I told my dad I failed and because I had failed a specific class, physiochemistry, hated it so much. And I told my dad and he thought it was hilarious. He laughed. And I was shocked by that because I remember the first B I ever made in my life when I was nine 
because my dad yelled at me so much for it. I had been a straight A student until I was nine and I was in primary five and I made a B. And so to have him laughing, I was like, what's so funny? And he's like, oh, he's like, you're so used to going through life without actually working. <laughs> he's like, and now you see what it's like for other people <laughs> when you actually have to apply yourself. <laughs> and then it turns out that he, he had gone to uh, medical school in what was the USSR at the time, and he had failed the exact same class. <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> That's how he had so much compassion. Yeah. <laughs> sympathetic to my plight. Um, and I wanted to drop out then, but my family, again, wouldn't let me because they were like, you already are in one year of debt. How are you going to pay for your student loans? Like, just stick it out. And I tried to stick it out. And interestingly, it was my professor, this man named Dr. Engelking, who was the physiochemistry professor, um, because he tutored me the second year. He tutored me over the summer. I kept failing the class. And at the end of it, he sat me down and all the other students hated him because he was really strict. I loved him because I love strict teachers. I'm just like, yes, let me never let you down. I'm here for these unattainable goals. Um, and he sat me down and he was like, look, he's like, it's not that you're not smart. Your brain might just not work this way. You know, and he was like, I'm a very smart man, but if you put me in engineering school, I'm going to flunk out because my brain does not work this way. And he was like, also, I think you're too young to be in this program. He was like, my son is your age and he's a junior in college. And this is a really, really stressful program. He was the only person who was like, hey, you're not doing well here. And not because you're not trying or because you're not smart, because it doesn't seem like it's a good fit for you. It's like, if you need to stop, you can stop. And I nearly cried because it was mm -hmm. the first time in my life that anyone had given me permission to fail mm -hmm. at something. And I dropped out. And he wrote my recommendation letter for NYU. And then I got into NYU and I was like, oh, crap, I'm in a public policy program. <laughs> Many missteps, well, honestly. Well, so the professor who was failing you, the one who failed you, the, you he was the one who, who was your sort of angel in that moment in helping mm -hmm. you find another yeah. way. Oh, yeah. And tell me in that time of your life, was writing something that, you did for fun or, or was it sort of put aside? Um, I was always writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I was journaling. I was writing, you know, terrible angsty poetry. <laughs> and that had been something that had been really encouraged since I was a kid. The woman who owned my school, Mrs. Zavana Onuma, my school back in Nigeria, she's actually a black educator from Ohio. Hmm. And yeah, and she was the one who got me started writing when I was five. I think I was in primary one and my classroom was opposite her office. And she would give me these like blank jotters because I was one of those kids who was obsessed with stationery. I was like, yes, give me a blank book. And she made a deal with me where if I gave it to her with a story in it, then she would give me another blank one. And I was like, oh my goodness, all I have to do is fill this one up and I get another one. Huh. And so... We did that and she just would collect all of them and give them to my mom. And her husband ran the school newspaper so they would publish my poetry. Like oh. terrible nine-year-old poetry and they would publish it all the time. And it was just so matter of fact, like, yes, you are a writer, that's fine. And so I kept doing it and it didn't occur to me that it was something I could do full-time until a couple of friends told me to do it full-time in 2013, so like seven years ago. Wait, so you were a couple of friends. What was that conversation? 
they said, you get to do this. You can do this. Yeah. I had many Tumblr blogs. Uh So I had many Tumblrs and one of them was specifically a writing Tumblr and they read it and they were like, you're really good. And I was like, I should hope so. I've been doing it for a long time. (laughs) Um, And they were like, have you ever thought about like, because they were all artists. And at that time I was still, I was working in a nonprofit in Manhattan after getting, you know, my master's degree. And I was just like, I guess I work in nonprofits now. (laughs) Um, And they were like, you know, like art is a viable career path. And most of them were other Nigerians, which was a big deal because art wasn't a viable career path. You know, Mm -hmm. growing up, being a writer wasn't even a possibility for me. So I had never considered it. It was just like, okay, I'm going to be a vet. Um, And so when they gave me that possibility, I was like, oh, interesting. And then I would go to poets and writers and I would go to like their grants and opportunities section. And for the next three years, I obsessively applied to everything. I wrote so many applications. I was applying to like McDowell uh-huh. and all these things that I was, I had no chance. I was such a terrible little writer back then. Um, but I just kept applying over and over again. I had like this running Google document and I was doing, I think an average of like 50 applications a year or something. Wow. And I had like a code for like, okay, you got rejected by this you know, cross it out in red, you got accepted by this. And it was just like one or two yeses every year, but they were really important yeses. Um, and and then I got into a fully funded MFA program based wow. on one of those yeses. And so I left my job and switched over. Um, do you look back at that Google Doc? I haven't in ages. <laughs> I haven't looked back at it, I think, in maybe two years. Well, since Freshwater came out. <laughs> yeah, no need for this anymore. <laughs> I was like, I'm never applying to things again. <laughs> I did my time. <laughs> it's it's striking to me that you didn't, you you had to sort of figure out what the next path was before you kind of moved in. The MFA program, do you think the MFA program for you was important to give you a kind of structure for making that transition to being a full-time creative person? Financial structure, definitely. Yes. <laughs> like that was, that was really the thing. And I couldn't make the next step until I had like a financial cushion mm-hmm. because it was so stressful for me to be broke. I was like, I don't have a place to go. I, I want to be able to write and have it be sustainable. So mm-hmm. once they were like, oh, it's fully funded, I was like, just the magic words, thank you. Mm-hmm. And can you tell me more about the, the Nigerian artists who were your friends at that time in your life? Like, why, why was it meaningful to have them giving you permission to commit to your art specifically? I think because, you know, they had all committed to theirs. Like, one was a fashion designer, one was a musician. Another was a fashion designer, (laughs) but they had all committed to theirs and, you know, they didn't have, that's not true, one of them had a nine to five, but um, it was just this cultural thing of saying that, hey, you know, your art is worth you investing in it, investing your time in it. Um, and, And I liked that as an option, you know, I thought it was it was an interesting one to explore. And I had the time and space to explore it because I was working part-time and because I did love writing, you know? Um, 
And so I was like, let me just give it a shot. Coming up, why Akweke based their latest novel in Nigeria and why they now consider themselves a citizen of nowhere. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Ekweke Emezi's new novel, The Death of Vivek Oji, explores the events after and leading up to the death of Vivek, a gender nonconforming character, and how his family and friends grieve him. The novel is set in Nigeria in the 1990s, which is also where and when Ekweke grew up. My little sister reads my manuscripts before anyone else, and she called me out on this one because the house that is the main setting and like the backyard and Vivek's room, all of that, it's all our childhood home. Mm. So she reached those chapters and she called me and she was like, do you even make anything up (laughs) or do you just steal from our childhood and pass it off as fiction? (laughs) Um, But so a lot of it is just pulled from our childhood. The community of the Niger wives is real. It's a real organization. It was formed in the seventies. My mom's a member Um, My principal that I was talking about at my school is a member, and I grew up with aunties like this, you know, from all over the world. I want to explain this. So this is an organization of of women who are not from Nigeria, but who have have gotten married in Nigeria and who are raising, for the most part, are they raising kids in Nigeria? Uh Were they mostly mothers? And and I was struck when you said you called it an organization. So it was, is it like a, like a formal sort of civic? organization, the Niger Wives? How does it yeah, work? Yeah, I think, I think they're legitimately a nonprofit, um, but they're definitely like a formal organization. They have chapters mm-hmm. in different states in Nigeria, um, and they've been going, yeah, since the early 70s, and they're still active today. They do a lot of like fundraising stuff and charity work, and the, I mean, the function of the organization at first was to help these women assimilate into Nigerian society. And yeah, and so I grew up in that community where they kind of bonded with each other because really, as I was talking about this book, I was like, oh, this is an immigrant community. Mm -hmm. That's just what it is. Like they were just an immigrant community who, you know, banded together and shared, you know, all the struggles that they were going through with adapting to a new country and, you know, raising kids and culture shock and for a lot of them not being able to like go back home to their home countries easily to see their families because we weren't like a really like wealthy community. It wasn't in a large port city where, you know, people are a bit more affluent. Like the town I grew up in is a small commercial like market town 
So basically a lot of the community was just working class. Hmm. And your mother was a member? Yes. And um, so she grew up in Malaysia, is that right? She did. She grew up in Malaysia and then she went to London for nursing school where she met my father who was doing his medical residency there. So the thing that I find, you mentioned it's an immigrant community, but what's so special about the Niger wives is that these women were from all over the world. They didn't share a common origin that they then yeah. gathered around. They shared the, the common experience of being different and trying to sort through their new home. Um, as a kid in that community, like, what did that mean for you? Who were your friends? Where were their moms from? Like, what did you learn about how the world worked through being exposed to that as a kid? So a lot of my friends were other Niger wife kids, um, but because I went to the same school from when I was two years old to when I was 16, like literally I have like my kindergarten graduation picture and it's me accepting my little diploma from the principal. And then I have my high school graduation picture and it's me accepting the diploma from the same woman. The same woman from Ohio. <laughs> it's very adorable. Um, and so I had friends from school my two best friends growing up, we lived on the same streets. And so we, and we lived there, you know, our whole lives. And for growing up in that community, it was a bit disorienting at times because we were considered, like even the children were considered foreigners because mm -hmm. our moms were foreigners. Mm -hmm. And so as a kid, for me, it felt really strange because I was like, how am I a foreigner if I was born here? and raised here, never lived anywhere else, but everyone treats me like I'm a foreigner. So like they wouldn't speak um, like my dad's language to me. Everyone was just like, oh, you know, your mom is white. And my mom's Tamil actually, but um, back home, the idea of foreign and white, essentially the same thing. Uh, uh -huh. So it was, a bit lonely at times. And I think that's part of why they also have that community is because then you weren't the only kid who felt like that because mm -hmm. then you could have all these other kids who were also born and raised there who were also considered foreigners and we all had a shared experience. Mm -hmm. Vivek Oji, the, the book's main character, he dies at the beginning of the book. So you, there's a sense of foreboding as you're reading to just figure out why, learn more. Um, many people in his life are hostile to him. There's the threat of violence and there's also real violence um, because he flouts normative ideas of gender and sexuality. Um, can you, when you take, think about the time you were growing up in Nigeria, someone like Vivek, like what, how would you describe and think about safety for someone like him during the time that you were growing up? I think a lot of it was about um, seclusion, in a sense. Like, there was a lot going on in the town that we were growing up in, but the way that our parents kept us safe was that they always knew where we were, mm. and they always knew if we weren't at home, they knew who we were with. So it was like, okay, if I wasn't at home, I was at my best friend's house. And they've known that family since literally before I was born. So it was fine. The one day my father didn't know where I was because I got dropped off after school to see my cousin who was working at a hotel and I told nobody. And he was just like distraught because he thought that I had been like kidnapped 
which was like a real a real concern. Um, and he went to the police and he was so angry. And when we were younger and my mother was living with us more, she actually would not allow anyone to take us out of the house. If she was not in the house, no one could take us out. Like no one could run errands with us. She was like, the children stay in the house. And the one time someone broke that rule, my sister got ran over by a pickup truck. Mm. So my mother was not pleased. And so a lot of it was just like control, not in a, like a bad way, but just in like, we need to know where you are. You are at home. You are in safe places. We vetted this other house. We know that this family is safe. We know that, you know, they're not going to let you take a dangerous route to get from their house to our house. You have to be home before it gets dark. Like it was just a lot of um, community. I think mm-hmm. it was like, you know, we lived on the same streets my whole life. So everyone on the street knew us and that there was a security in that. It's like, well, okay, people know who your kids are. So even if something goes wrong somewhere, the chances, which I wrote into the book, the chances of someone, you know, seeing me and like, oh, that's my neighbor. Come, I'll take care of you. Like Toby Chuku does for Vivek in the book where he pulls him out of a dangerous yeah. situation because they live next door to each other. It was very much... Um, a community-minded thing. It's community and it's protection. And also, I imagine for someone who's a teenager, maybe um, not a lot of freedom. I mean, we worked around it. We figured, <laughs> we lied. We lied all the time. <laughs> we said we were at friends' houses and then we would go to that friend's house and say we're going to the other house. And then we would just, you know, galvans <laughs> about town. But even then, like, honestly, I grew up so sheltered that my idea of what was rebellious <laughs> was very, very mild. Like when I came to the States for college and the first time I went to a club, I was like, <gasps> Oh my goodness! <laughs> Scandalous! <laughs> like college was where I was like, "Oh, this is what people do with their free time." Fascinating. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. When do you think of the time in your life when you were the most sort of um, without gravity, like kind of like free and off, off without constraint? I guess. Quite honestly, right now. Hmm. Out of all the lives I've lived, this one is my favorite. Oh, tell me more about that. It's having a home, I think, has been a really big part of that. I grew up in a bungalow that had a little farm in the back, and that was all I wanted. I used to talk about it on Twitter years before I even started writing professionally. I was like, oh, I can't wait for my bungalow. And I used to buy things for it and then keep them in my mom's garage. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes, we would go antiquing together. And I would get all these like old copper kitchen utensils. And she's like, why are you getting them? I'm like, it's for my bungalow. And she's like, you don't have a bungalow. And I was like, I will. (laughs) And I would just stock up all the things. Um, And now I have a bungalow. (laughs) And I have, you know, my little garden slash little farm in the back. And as terrible as this pandemic has been in several ways, it's also allowed me to spend like the longest amount of time in this house since I got it last year, just uninterrupted time. And and I find it delightful. I'm like, you know, it's just me and the kitten and the garden and it makes me really happy. 
Do you think of this time as a time of solitude or have you been sort of on the phone or on Zoom with other people in your life? A lot of solitude. I've been avoiding Zoom quite a bit. The book tour destroyed that. (laughs) They were like, we're sorry, you have to Zoom. I was like, fine. (laughs) Um, But other than that, there there was a lot of solitude. And I was thinking back to something you said earlier about like, being alone in this isolation and what that's kind of been like. And I realized that one of the things that it's kind of forced me to do is to witness myself. I'm used to, I'm usually somebody who is kind of unsure about a lot of things, like unsure about safety, unsure about, you know, kind of being stable. And I would lean on my friends a lot, like, you know, tell me I'm okay. And, and because we have like that kind of community, it was like, okay, yes, a lot of, supporting each other and reassuring each other. But for me, it felt like a lot of things in my life weren't real unless someone else looked at them and Mm -hmm. said, it's real because I didn't trust my own gaze and I didn't trust my own assessment. And that just goes back to how I was raised where everyone was like, you're overreacting and you're too sensitive. And a lot of, you know, past trauma where I've literally been conditioned to not trust my instincts, to not trust myself, to not trust all of that, my intuition. And so I seek affirmation from people I do trust because I trust them more than I trust myself, or I used to at least. And this amount of alone time has really challenged me, you know, like, okay, if you're going to paint your walls this color, no one else can see it right now. Like no one can come and say like, yes, this is the color you should paint it. You have to make the decision alone. And at first it was really sad. Like it made me really sad to be making decisions alone because I wanted to, you know, have my friends come over and we do the garden together or we do stuff together. I'm someone who likes little bubbles, but I like my bubbles to be full of like people that I love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I like the company and I like us to be like alone together. Like I'm over here in my little bubble and but you can be right next to me and we can just be alone together. Um, And here in this pandemic in the house, I had to be alone by myself. And it taught me to trust myself more. It taught me that if I'm, you know, nesting and I'm making my space beautiful, what does it look like to make it beautiful for only myself? Because I'm only, I'm the only person who's seeing it. I'm not making it beautiful for my friends or to show to other people. What if I'm my only audience? And then that just kind of like, sense of this whole cascade because I'm like if you are your only audience what does that change what does that change in how you act what does that change in how you think about yourself what does that change in your work if you just remove the idea of anyone else being a witness and you witness yourself and that I think has been like a real fundamental shift hmm yeah because you you have so many stories of these wonderful offerings of permission from external prompts at key moments in your life. And besides painting the wall and choosing wall colors, is there anything else sort of significant that you know that's like, ah, this was something I'm deciding to do as my audience of one? (laughs) Um, I think a lot of the things I'm doing with the garden, Uh like it's excessive. And I do things on a really big (laughs) scale. (laughs) 
really is. <laughs> I do things on like a large scale. So it's never just like, oh, painting one wall. It's like, oh, we're doing like a mini little renovation thing for a house that didn't really need it. And we're reorganizing. Like it's it's always grand. It's like, oh, we're getting a ton of plans and now we're landscaping. It's I got into landscape architecture. Uh-huh. accidentally because I was like oh I want my yard to look like this and then I started like looking into what it would take to make that happen and then I was like oh this is landscape architecture wonderful so now I'm doing a side gig in interior design and another side gig in landscape architecture which is separate from my gardening and and that was a lot and sometimes it's that thing of investing in yourself you know like the decision to go into writing it was like well if you are you going to put all this effort into something for who And so with all the stuff I've been doing with the house and the property, it's been like, does it matter if it's just you living here? Does it have to be this extravagant if it's just you? Does the yard really need to be covered in a wall of bamboo with, you know, stepping stones and a pollinator garden and that fountain you want to put in? Like, it's just you. And the answer was yes. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, it actually does matter if it's just me. This is what I like. This is what I want to be surrounded by. This is not what, you know, my family thinks is a good decision. Quite often they think it's a bad decision. They're like, why are you spending so much money? And I'm like, it's not your money. So we're not going to talk about it. Um, (laughs) But to give myself extravagance and to deem myself worthy of extravagance that again is only witnessed by me. It's not for a partner. It's not for my friends. It's not to show to anybody. It's just for my pleasure. And centering my pleasure like that is wildly new for me because often those decisions also make other people uncomfortable. You know, like the decisions to really lean into a kind of opulence and it, I think it challenges some people who perhaps don't give themselves as much and believe in scarcity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean in terms of like, you know, whether people actually have resources in that structural way. I mean more in like a, in a philosophical way of if you could give yourself everything, would you? Or do you think that part of you doesn't deserve that? And if you see someone giving themselves everything, does that trigger you? into feeling, you know, some kind of way about it. And I spent a large part of my life looking for permission from other people, dialing back myself because I didn't want to make other people uncomfortable or because I couldn't figure out how to justify why I was doing the things I was doing other than I want to. And I want to was not a good enough reason back then. So now it's kind of like, no, it's because I want to. And it makes me happy. And more importantly, you can't stop me. So it's it's felt like a different kind of freedom. Mm. That's wonderful. Do you find uh, at this moment, does writing feel like it's something you're doing for yourself? Or not, now that it's your livelihood, does it feel like you're reporting for work? Oh, I hit that point last year. Mm-hmm. where I did not want to write at all. I wouldn't even journal because I was like, journal? That's writing for free. <laughs> Who's 
pay me for that. <laughs> I could save all my writing energy for something that would actually make me money. And I was just like, ooh, capitalism has got its hooks into you. Um, and so I took a break from writing. At some point last year, I was like, okay, you don't have to write anything. You can just stop. And you don't have to churn out more books. You've churned out more than enough. You've turned out so many that we can't actually publish them all at the same time. And now you're having, you've got a backlog actually for a few years. And I stopped for a while and I waited and I waited until um, that feeling had lifted a bit. And then when I started writing again, it, it felt better. It felt more like fun. I was also writing a romance novel, so that made mm. me much happier uh-huh. than, <laughs> than writing other genres. And you know, I'm under contract for a couple of books. I'm trying to finish those. Those do feel like reporting to work a little bit. Um, but I'm giving myself the incentive of when I'm done with them, I get to write the books that are fun for me, which is fantasy. I get to write fantasy and romance and possibly fantasy romance. And mm. that's what I'm really excited for. <laughs> mm. Talk about like luxurious. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm curious now in your life, where do you consider yourself a citizen of? Nowhere. (laughs) My bio says that I'm based in liminal spaces and I've had it that way since Freshwater. It was a conversation because they were like, you're really going to debut with this in your bio. And I was like, yes, because I mean it. And I'm going to keep it that way um, because it's true. Like it's beyond, you know, geographical placement. It's beyond nation. And I went through the whole, like, I think all mixed kids have like this angsty phase of like, which culture do I belong in? I am torn between the two. And I was like, I definitely went through that. And I traveled around. I wrote one essay about it and I capped myself. And I was like, we're not writing about this anymore. (laughs) Then I wrote an essay about it for Commonwealth Writers that was about placelessness and being a foreigner in the country I was raised in, and then going to my mom's country and thinking that perhaps that would feel like home. And they were just like, oh, you're lying about that being your mom because you're clearly African. And I was like, okay, but back home, they say I'm not, so what am I? And then coming to the States and everyone's just like, you're just black. I was like, (laughs) okay. And then going to Trinidad. And in Trinidad, they have a very specific word for people of mixed African and Indian heritage, which is Dogla. And I was just like, oh, y'all have a specific, specific word for Uh me. Oh, that's fascinating. It felt like being seen in some ways. Lived in Trinidad for a bit. I was like, I've looked for that where I would feel a citizen of all over. And by the time I figured it out, I was like, oh, the answer is nowhere. Hmm. The answer is actually in that liminal space of just being in between places and never really settling into one place. And even now, you know, I live in New Orleans, but at the same time, I don't live in New Orleans. I live in this house and this house is not just a house. I called it shiny, the God house. Mm. And it's really a dimension, which sounds like corny, but it has a different feeling. It's like, a suspended reality because that's how I move through spaces. So it doesn't really matter which physical space I'm in. I'm probably dissociating (laughs) and not actually in that space (laughs) at all. And so when I got my own house, I was like, oh my goodness, 
I can dissociate with an entire house. <laughs> and so I made the entire house like this bubble of dissociation. And it has a different feeling. Like when people walk into it, they can feel the difference between being inside my bubble and being outside. And so I'm like, for me, the language that has fit that best is liminal spaces. Like, mm-hmm. okay, this is where I'm centered. It's not really anywhere in particular. And dissociation has a negative quality connotation for me usually that term do you really yeah (laughs) like you it sounds like you're saying I'm choosing dissociation to create this special dimension that's all my own yes I realize that I have surrounded myself with a community that's very (laughs) pro-dissociation because we're always just like yeah who wants to be in this reality this reality sucks (laughs) this reality is violent and cruel and People in my community, you know, like we're queer, we're trans, we're black, like the violence visits itself on us, whether we like it or not. Everyone dissociates, everyone. The only way that we're able, I believe, to move through how violent this world is, is by dissociating from the scale of the violence. Because if you ever stopped and really thought about all the violence that was happening in one moment around the world, your brain would just like glitch and give up. Like every time we think about things, every time we just think about our own little worlds, we're dissociating from someone else's. Like we're dissociating Mm. from what's happening in another part of the world, what someone else is suffering. Every time we tell ourselves like, well, you know, there's beauty in this world too. I'm like, yeah, cool. But you're still dissociating from all the pain because none of that beauty matters. Like you can go to one person who's just know nothing but suffering <laughs> or like one child. Sometimes I think about like my past child self and you can go and tell them, well, oh yes, there's so many beautiful things in the world. And if it doesn't actually do anything to help them or to stop their pain or stop their suffering, what does all that beauty matter? I'm like, does it actually matter? But we've convinced ourselves that it does because we have to do something to survive, to not succumb to despair. And so for me, dissociation is a survival thing, which we all do. And for a lot of my community for whom dissociation has been involuntary Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, or as a result of trauma, we've learned how to use it as a tool. We've Mm -hmm. learned how to use it to create boundaries so that instead of feeling all that pain and despair that you know people are going through that you are helpless to stop. You can separate from it and just be like, okay, I am alive. This is my job. This is what I can do. And I can just kind of stay in that lane. And to stay in that lane requires dissociation. I'm actually of the opinion that sanity requires dissociation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so interesting. To think of dissociation as a what you're it's it's another way of saying uh, I recognize the pain that I'm turning away from, but I'm doing it as an act of choosing uh, joy and self care and what I need to take care of myself and the people I love. Um, but it's not uh, ignoring the pain that you're turning. Dissociation, I feel like, embedded in that word is acknowledging that you are turning away from a reality that's harsh and cruel that exists. 
Yeah, and so often the the dissociation is a matter of not dying. You know, like I've been suicidal for most of my life. Um, I started antidepressants last year and I was like, wow, whole new world, who knew? (laughs) But before then, you know, it wasn't because I was sad or anything, but it was just that being alive hurts. And I was so aware of how much it hurts, not just for me, but for you know, the people I cared about and the people I didn't know. And the idea of that hurt magnifying the more you think about other people, because we're all, you know, interconnected. We're not just like single solitary items, like we're all connected. And if you actually tap into the pain that is in that entire connection, it's, it'll destroy you. It actually will, because it's, inhumane like no one should be living like that like there shouldn't be this much suffering and i think that's something that we can all agree on is like in this life there should not be as much suffering as there is and you see how the suffering just keeps getting worse and worse and that always felt like a weight on me and it felt like the only way i could stop that weight from crushing me was to die Mm. and and i think that yes there's a huge part of acknowledging that suffering, which I think is very different from people pretending that because it's not happening to them, that it doesn't exist, or because it's not happening in their country, it doesn't exist. And being like, well, everything's fine as long as, you know, it's not our country being bombed. It's not our country, you know, dealing with this or that. Um, And that I think is more cruel than acknowledging, hey, I see that there is this much suffering. I can't hold it all because no one can. And if I try to hold it on, if I try to hold it all, it would literally kill me. And so in order to survive, I am separating from this and I am separating in a way that can give me a decent quality of life. I don't think it's impossible to at least not for me and not for my community. It's not possible for us to separate completely. Um, we're still very much aware of it. We still feel it a lot. We're still you know, doing work in our different ways to try and make things better. But really it's often been a decision about is this going to destroy us or not? Mm-hmm. For you, when you feel a moment of heaviness or you feel the despair right now, what do you find that you do? I go into stories. Yeah. I, for me, ever since I was a kid, stories have been the place that gave me somewhere else to be that didn't hurt as much. Um, and, and that's why I have a soft spot for fantasy because it was really giving you somewhere else to be. It was like, it's so far away from here. You don't have to pretend that you're here. You're somewhere else and there's magic. So it's better. Um, so now I, I go into stories. Sometimes I go and garden, um, working outside kind of puts me in a neutral space. Like I just kind of float. I can't actually meditate because I find it very irritating and frustrating to try and <laughs> meditate. <laughs> but gardening is the closest I can come to it where I'm like, okay, I'm just listening to music. I'm not thinking about anything. 
I'm just working with the land. I'm working with these plants and I can spend hours like that. And it's very, it's calming. So it's really about finding other places to be. And that's why I'm also really grateful for my work because whenever it gets too heavy, I'm just like, it's like I have a Rolodex of stories in my head. And I'm just like, which world would you like to enter? It's like a, oh. a virtual reality, but just inside my head. And then I can enter a story of one of the many books that I need to write. And I can just kind of live there and, you know, dissociate. <laughs> yeah. Well, and share it with us and allow the rest of us to as well. Like it's, Yes. Yeah. Disseminated dissociation. <laughs> That's Ikweke Imezi. Their new novel is The Death of Vivek Oji. And you can see Ikweke's extravagant garden and interior decorating on Instagram at Shiny the Godhouse. Also, if you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1 800 273 8255. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Thanks to the team at The Green Space, who made this live conversation possible. Sachi Ezra, Cam Tompkins, Ricardo Fernandez, David McLean, and Jennifer Sendro. Afi Yellowduke produced this episode. The rest of the Death, Sex, and Money team is Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And subscribe to our newsletter for behind-the-scenes updates from the team, weekly podcast recommendations, and stories from other listeners. That's at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.